Hello, everybody, and welcome to Public Health Musings. I'm your host, Dr. Caroline Kingori, a faculty member and public health researcher at Ohio University. We are happy you could join us. In our inaugural episode this week, we are joined by Dr. Michael Reese, a faculty member at Ohio University, who also has extensive track record of public health research in the US and globally. Until recently, Dr. Reese was the Associate Dean of Research at Indiana University in Bloomington, as well as a co-director of the Center for Sexual Health Promotion. Today, he will talk to us about his public health journey. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Reese. Glad to be here. So if you could just get us started on what is public health and what does it entail? Well, that's a tricky question these days, I think. Um, you know, I, I've, to a, at a certain point in my career, I got to thinking that public health is really everything around us. Um, public health, um, you know, I think about public health in terms of those things that we do in everyday life. Um, public health is the water we drink. Public health is the food we eat. Public health is um, all of those standards you expect and all of those things that keep you healthy and safe every time you get on a plane or a train or in an automobile or you eat at a restaurant or you take a piece of wedding cake at a celebration. Um, public health is a really diverse field. Um, it's hard to um, define it. I think, I think public health traditionalists have a more boundaried conceptualization of what public health is as a field, but I tend to think of public health in terms of the world around us and um, the social conditions that exist and that we continue to work to improve um, to focus on healthy populations and for people to enjoy a happy quality of life. That is a wonderful response. Um, it definitely brings home that complexity that we find with trying to define public health. So what really motivated you to pursue public health as well as stay in the field of public health? Well, I um, honestly, I ended up in um, public health because I couldn't uh, get into vet school. I had planned um, to go to veterinary school and, as an undergrad and um, I was just too competitive and I just was, I was a little too lazy at that point in my life to put in that much work. And I had taken some classes actually in um, uh, sort of animal health and environmental health and it sort of intrigued me. Um, and so I started taking classes in public health as an undergrad, um, but what really motivated me was that, uh, uh, you know, I graduated from high school in 1985 so right around um, that time in my college career, you know, my sophomore year, the AIDS epidemic was raging and uh, it was a scary time for many people. And um, my university had a, a program out of the student health services called the Peer Sexuality Educators Program. And a friend of mine um, recommended that I go and check it out. And um, I, I ended up doing that program and it sort of convinced me that this was the right place for me to be and that it was the field I should be in. So I spent the last few years of my undergrad uh, giving 
presentations on my campus at the University of Georgia, uh, largely uh, around the issue of date rape or acquaintance rape, as it was called back in the late 80s, uh, to the Greek system on the University of Georgia campus. So once I realized that you know, I was part of a generation of people who had grown up knowing very little about their bodies, very little about relationships and sexuality, and a little about the health implications, particularly during a confusing and scary time when AIDS was really raging in the late 80s. Uh, it just seemed like it was the right place for me to be, and I really never looked back. Wow, that's quite a story. And speaking of date rape, speaking of HIV, you are also an expert in sexual health and the founder of the Center for Sexual Health Promotion at Indiana University. Could you talk about the work that you did at the center? Yeah, um, when I went to Indiana University in 2000, um, you know, I, I had been doing lots of community-based HIV-related work uh, in on the West Coast and in the Southern United States uh, during grad school and after grad school. And when I got to Indiana University, everyone there started um, saying to me, oh, you obviously came here because the Kinsey Institute is here. But I actually didn't know that the Kinsey Institute was there. I mean, as much as I had done about sexuality over my life and career to that point. I didn't even think about that when I went to Indiana University. And um, so I, I started to realize at Indiana that I was in this really unique place that had this long international history of work related to human sexuality. And I started to meet people and I started to really get an appreciation for the first time for this for sexual science, really, this completely unbiased study of sexuality, not with a disease focus, um, not with a health focus, but simply understanding sexuality, both human and other forms, um, as a science in its own right. Um, but I was in a I was in a public health place, and um, so what I to back up a little bit. Going, going to Indiana University before that, I had worked in lots of community-based uh, HIV prevention projects that were very sex-positive programs. They were focused on uh, largely getting gay and bisexual men to be more open about sexuality and to talk about the sex side of safer sex and to talk about the sex side of the HIV epidemic. So, so, you know, when I landed at Indiana, I already had this orientation toward a, a more sex view of public health than public health had traditionally had. And then I landed in this place that had this history of this unbiased focus on sexuality so for me, it seemed like what the perfect thing that was needed was what was called a middle ground, right? That somewhere in the middle of this absolute unbiased study of sexuality, and on the other side, this disease-focused view of sexuality that public health had, I thought that there had to be a middle ground. And if we pulled from the best traditions of sexual science with the best traditions of public health approaches, that that might be a good way to define sexual health and to start training generations of future scholars and future educators. 
And um, so we started this new center uh, that ended up becoming the Center for Sexual Health Promotion. And it, it, it really worked toward that goal of this middle ground between sexual science and public health science to, um, to better balance ways that we dealt with topics of sexuality in the field of public health. That's wonderful. And given your experience in the community and then having to move to academia, how were you able to translate what you were doing back to the community? Well, it's always um, a challenge. Um, I had, um, before I went to Indiana University, I did my postdoctoral fellowship at the Johns Hopkins um, School of Public Health in Baltimore. And my training was specifically in community-based participatory research. I was part of a Kellogg Foundation program that sought to train a certain number of new public health faculty members who would all go into their jobs with an orientation toward community. And right. so um, I had also had an extensive experience working in communities. I had worked in state government with federal government. I had worked in community-based organizations. I had worked in um, mental health clinics. Uh, I had worked in minority organizations in the city of Atlanta. So, you know, I came in with this academic preparation and this uh, in community-based work, and I had the community-based um, experience behind me. So to me, it was, it was a natural, um, you know, I'll tell you a funny story. The, the reason I even went back to get a PhD was this very reason. Um, I was one day in a meeting in Phoenix, Arizona. I ran the um, HIV prevention unit uh, for the state health department in Arizona. And one day there was, I was at this community meeting and um, uh, a, a member of our community group was presenting some interview data that um, they had collected from a Native American uh, group who literally lived at the bottom of the Grand Canyon. And, mm. um, you know, an incredible amount of work had gone into talking with this community about HIV and about their concerns uh, about their youth. And I remember an epidemiologist stood up in that meeting and said, well, that's not data and we can't use it. Um, you know, that's just what wow. people think and that's just what people say. And these people living at the bottom of the Grand Canyon, you know, that that's not data that, that the CDC will recognize. And I, I remember in that moment sort of being horrified, um, but, right. but more importantly, feeling really, um, really unprepared to respond to the group because I realized I didn't, I didn't get the skills during my uh, master's program to really translate this information. And um, I, I felt really like I'm not prepared to solve these types of issues, but someone needs to. So, you know, my path during my doctoral program and my community-based work after during that and then this postdoc was really oriented toward that unique experience of me trying to answer this question of how do we really do public health in communities and how do we translate work? So 
Um, you know, so I don't know how to really answer your question. Some of it, I think, was organic because I felt just as much like a community member as I did a researcher. And so I all it was always in the back of my mind. Uh, I had good mentors who helped me think about ways to write differently and ways to speak differently um, and ways to teach differently to always be sure that community perspective was there. Um, and I would say probably for the first decade of my academic career during my time at Indiana, 80 to 85 percent of everything I did was done in collaboration with a community partner. Um, so, you know, projects were designed with the goal of translating them back into a clinic protocol or to improve an evaluation form or to create an educational piece of literature. And um, I think that partnership approach was um, what kept me on track. That's a wonderful response. I think um, you having that experience in Phoenix and sort of being like, why would not the community voice matter um, is what has made you make a difference in public health. Because if you look at it, it is the health of the public. So it is about the public. It is about the community. And as experts in public health, it is important for us to ensure that um, we work with the community and not do unto them, right? Uh, we make sure they are our partners. So thank you for that response. Yeah, I think it's, and I, I think the time we're living in right now is really, you know, a good reflection of this kind of philosophy. I agree with you completely. I, you know, I think we, sometimes it's easy being inside an academic environment or being a graduate student to forget that all of those metrics of, um, papers and presentations and doing all of this academic stuff um, at the end of the day is completely meaningless unless it's actually getting back out into communities in ways that people can use it and in ways that becomes digestible, not just to those working in public health, but to everyday people on the street as well. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So could you describe some of your most interesting findings in your research work? And what were some of the public health implications um, from that? Oh, gosh, there's been so much. Um, <laughs> I think, um, well, some of my favorite work has been uh, about sex toys. And um, I, I remember, um, you know, people may say, well, what does sex toys have to do with public health? And they have a lot to do with public health. Number one, um, they have... Um, toys have um, long been associated with uh, clinical improvements uh, and both physiological and psychological related to sexual function in both men and women. Um, there are lots of relationship uh, quality components um, to toy use in terms of partner communication, um, partner's ability to be open about their sexuality and their sexual health and their sexual behaviors. Um, and they also have played an important role as we've documented in some of our work um, related to education. Um, you know, sometimes people will see a, a, a sex shop on the side of the road or, you know, it's kind of that place that you only sneak into if you're going to a bachelor party or a bachelorette party and you want some novelty gag gifts. Um, but what we've learned, what we learned in some of our really early research was that 
people um, in communities actually view those venues as legitimate places to seek information and advice. Um, you know, we, we can never forget we're surrounded by generations, um, old and young, of Americans in particular who, who live their lives with the absence of any quality or comprehensive information about their bodies and about sexuality education. We're an incredibly sexually illiterate society, both young people and old people. So um, people are eager to um, ask questions and get information. And so, you know, some of our, um, some of our, you know, one time I was in, a, I was actually in one of those adult novelty stores uh, with some friends just hanging out in Washington, D.C. And what got me into this research was that um, there was a, a person working there and a customer came in. And when the customer came in, they asked the person behind the counter, they said, wow, look at all of those lubricants on the wall. Like, which ones do you recommend? And the person working behind the counter said, oh, I don't know. Um, I just pick my favorite and I tell people that it's the best one and that's the one they buy. And I just in that moment thought, wow, you know, public health has spent years trying to educate people on the use of appropriate lubricants with latex condoms. We've talked about lubrication and its importance um, for long periods of time. And I had never thought that people actually go into stores like that and ask questions. So to be able to validate in years of our research that those stores have value and that people seek out information and advice and that um, you know, we, we've uh, related to that. We did the first, we published the first ever nationally represent, representative studies on vibrator use um, among, wow. among men and women in the United States and found their prevalence really high. Uh, so that, that, that line of work on sex toys and vibrators in particular and lubricants has been uh, really important to me. I would probably say um, the the other line of research that has been really important to me has been related to the mental health implications of HIV infection. And uh, we, we've studied for years um, the mental health consequences of, of getting an infection or having a loved one who's infected. We've studied the practice of seeking mental health care and staying in mental health care. Um, and I think that um, it's not necessarily the, the papers and the work we've done to change clinical protocols that has been as important. What probably has been more important to me has been just a general understanding that that all of this is psychological, like that at the end of the day, you know, um, people who find themselves with an infection, whether it's HIV or, or any other chronic disease, um, you know, we, we can document the mental health consequences of that. But what we've really learned over time is that many of these mental health challenges have existed in generations among communities for years. Uh, and that these public health things that we measure like an infection or a disease or a diagnosis just bring out all of those mental health consequences and, and make it worse. Um, and I think, you know, today is a good example of this as well, right? Like we're, we're under, we're focusing on the physiological consequences of COVID-19, 
but we know very little about the long-term impact um, psychologically on society as a whole of, of real, realizing perhaps how fragile we are and how this brings out lots of insecurities and, and long ingrained um, psychosocial issues that people have to deal with. Wow, thank you. Those are some really critical points you've raised, especially the issue of sex as a topic and mental health as a topic. And the fact that people do not see the interaction of some of the aspects of sexuality um, and other related topics, as well as mental health. And I was just wondering, what would you say with regard to how can we get the community involved? How can we get policymakers involved in these topics that tend to be considered taboo to a certain extent? Well, um... The, ta the sexuality topics, um, my, the thing I think I've learned over time from a public health perspective is that we will never win on the morality front, right? Um, sex educators, for example, for a long time um, fought using strategies to stakeholders by saying things like, well, but imagine the number of teen pregnancies that will happen if we don't do sex education or count the number of um, the rise in syphilis that will happen or, you know, these the, we've we've always gone to stakeholders and policymakers with this long list of the negative consequences, like very epidemiological stuff. Um, and that has never worked um, because on the moral side, you have lots of policymakers and lots of stakeholders who who do view this topic of sexuality only from a more a place of morality, um, regardless of whether it's legitimate that they really think those things. It's it's their public stand as a morality stand. So in their minds, if people get pregnant, um, then that's what happens to you. You shouldn't have been having sex until you were ready to get pregnant. If you get an infection, their belief is, well, that's what happens. You shouldn't have been doing these bad, dirty things in your life. Um, so we have to find ways to be um, better at winning arguments around these topics with policymakers and public health. But, um, one strategy that we started to use and that I think is an effective one, and we're seeing it play out with COVID, um, is an economic argument, right? Um, every unintended pregnancy is not just uh, just isn't just for the health consequences and the social consequences to the life of that individual. It has real economic consequences. It results in lost productivity. It results in changes and increases in healthcare costs. It, it drives up the price of medicine. It raises the bar of all of our expenses in public health. So, um, you know, that's just one strategy that I would throw out there. And I'm not, when I say economics, I don't mean this uh, kind of controversy that we're in now, which is, you know, um, which is economics over health. I'm certainly not suggesting that at all, but it is the case in many communities that policymakers and stakeholders will respond to an economic argument and we tend to be more successful with those, uh, we will always lose going the morality route. Right, so you're basically looking at maybe a return on the investment pretty much for all the work that they do. Exactly. 
Great. And so you brought out a lot about um, coronavirus or what we are calling COVID-19, uh, the, the new pandemic. And so what do you think, what is, does the role, what is the role of public health um, in this pandemic right now? Well, I don't know. It's, um, it's a big question. I, uh, you know, on one hand, um, this is all very traditional public health, right? Um, everything yeah. that you hear talked about on TV all day, every day, um, are all of the things that public health has, has talked about for a long period of time. I do think that, um, as you well know, a couple of years ago, the accrediting body for public health training programs in the country uh, dramatically changed their competencies, the things that people are supposed to learn. And many schools uh, right. struggled with those because it went away from um, a focus on knowledge to a focus on skills and being able to apply those skills. And I, I was actually um, thinking this morning that, you know, they maybe saw something that all of us who complained about it at the time didn't see um, because this COVID-19 has really taught us that we need a completely different public health system. Um, for example, um, there are new things that we teach and that we expect people to learn about systems thinking, you know, like how to take mm -hmm. complex systems of a society and bring them back together. And I think COVID has taught us that that's a really important thing for public health to understand. Uh, you know, it's a, we, you know we, we talk a lot about contract tracing and we would train people how to do contract tracing in public health. But if you really take that mm -hmm. system and you break it down, we're at a point where we've fallen apart simply because someone can't get a, a something that's a swab that you have to use for people to take a test in order to get a diagnosis. And then that contract tracing would happen. So that whole notion of systems and the complexity of systems in uh, the societies around the world is a perfect place for public health to start its focus. We have to understand about supply chains. We have to understand about supply chain management. Um, we, we have this epidemic, I think, has taught us that we can teach people and people can digest and understand very basic things related to disease transmission, related to epidemiology, related to understanding numbers. But for public health mm -hmm. to really be responsive, we have to start thinking more like, um, you know, in, in terms of these complicated systems, more like things that you would learn if you were getting an MBA rather than an MPH. Uh, I think it's, it's a dramatic shift uh, away from being an expert on a few things to say that public health mm -hmm. professionals have to become well-rounded, uh, highly skilled individuals who can look at various systems in society, be able to communicate, uh, be able to negotiate across them, and understand problems in a much different way than just the, the types of traditional public health data that we would have focused on before this. Right. So if I hear you correct, you're thinking more of looking at the uh, relationships at different levels, you know, not just focusing at what's happening at the individual level. We're looking at the relationships with their families. We are looking at what's happening in the communities and we're looking at policies and funding um, that really come together to um, uh, play a role in how we address health. Yeah, issues, and right? you know, I was, I was also thinking this morning how similar um, this experience of COVID is to 
work that I did when I was in Liberia. Um, I worked in Liberia yeah. during its mo most recent um, large-scale Ebola outbreak. And um, one of the things that we learned in Liberia at the time was that uh, we had all of the systems in place for diagnosis, for contract tracing, for isolation and quarantine. But what uh, no one in Liberia's system had accounted for were the traditional customs associated with death, grieving, and burial practices mm -hmm. in that in that culture. Mm -hmm. And we realized that lots of Ebola was being spread um, because people weren't able to give up on their customs of washing the body of a loved one, of keeping the body of a loved one in the home, of being around that body. And so the public health system thought, well, we're tracing people and we understand it, but had not realized at all that those cultural norms and cultural traditions of family and custom don't just go away because there's an epidemic. And there was an incredible amount of spread happening simply because people were doing what they had done for generations around the concept of a, the loss of a loved one. Um, and I think this epidemic is, is shares some of those similarities in that it's a, it's a challenge to our customs of being together, of sharing, of being around each other, of communicating uh, and being with family in certain ways. And uh, the, I think you're absolutely right. It's those social cultural norms that we have to attend to just as much mm -hmm. as we do the notion of disease transmission. Good. And this, again, just brings us back to what you started telling us, how that experience that you had in Phoenix about um, this CDC official ignoring what the community felt was important to them. And uh, what I hear you saying is that we really need to hear and listen um, and understand where the community is coming from. And then we can work with them to help address this. Yeah, situation. absolutely. The, what we think in public health um, as professionals really needs to be set aside. Um, we're we not the deciders of human behavior. Uh, we're not the deciders of how people will interpret and respond to information that we give them. At, at the end of the day, if we're not effective at communicating and understanding the norms, traditions, and cultures of the communities in which we work and live, uh, we've, we've started off at a really bad place. Wow, thank you so much for that. So for those interested in public health, what do they need to do to take the first step? Well, um, I, I, it's uh, unfortunate, um, but I think one of the realities is that a uh, master's degree in public health is is a basic expectation. Um, I think that it will it, for people who really want to work in public health, having that degree and having that credential is um, really important. And I don't just say that because you and I spend our days recruiting people to the MPH. <laughs> Uh, I think right. we, we spend our day recruiting people to the MPH because uh, it's such an important degree in our field. So getting that education is, is a really important. I, you know, I also say, want to say to people, um, I, all the time people ask me, well, should I go to this school or should I go to that school? Uh, does the school I graduate from in terms of name really matter? And I often say to people, uh, go to the place that's going to work best for your personal and professional needs and your family's needs. 
Um, almost 90% of everything you will learn in public health school is the same at every institution. And um, uh, there's just, it's just that finessing and that ability to fit it into your life that really is the important thing, I think, that makes the decision. The other thing is um, to try to get out and get as much experience as you can. Um, not necessarily working, um, but just as important is volunteering. Um, getting exposed to how community organizations think and work, um, understanding uh, the role that social service entities play in your community. And, you know, there are thousands of people who graduate from public health programs every single year with a Master of Public Health. And there are few smaller proportions of all of those graduates who have that practical experience, who have things on their resume that show that they're able to communicate with others, that they're able to be a team player, that they're able to function uh, within an organization. And, and those experiences uh, really do matter when people uh, go out onto the job market or to get a career. So I think practical experience is, is just as important. And lastly, I would say, um, make sure it's something that you really want to do. You know, public health is really hard. Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, it's, I, I don't, people would always say, well, it's not glamorous work, but I think that just depends. It depends on what you think glamorous is, right? If you're happy and you love your work, then maybe that's what glamorous is. But public, public health is hard and people don't really appreciate public health. And your family will always ask you, why did you go into public health rather than go and make lots of money, you know, in business or something like that? Mm -hmm. So I, I, I think be sure that you really want to do it and understand why you want to do it uh, as well, because it, it's hard. It's grueling work. It takes a lot out of people. And um it often goes underappreciated in society. And uh, so I would say think, you know, think hard and make sure that it's really what you want to do before you put all the sweat and tears into it that it takes. Right. Awesome. So I have seen an increase in interest in epidemiology. Uh, would you speak about other tracks that someone can focus on um, or major in? in yeah, I, um, I think there are lots of people who are um, interested in epidemiology specifically because there are lots of jobs that get labeled epidemiology in our field. Um, I think that's just a, mm -hmm. a tradition of public health. Lots of those jobs show up with the name epidemiology. And some of that is really just tied to government funding streams and a, a long historical language in public health that just uses that word. Um, but the fact of the matter is there are many other possibilities in public health. Um, I, I still, uh, I've always been a community health person. I'll always be a community health person. And getting a degree with a track in community health, uh, community health promotion, uh, anything related to community is is always an attractive feature. You know, if you if you think about the communities in which you live, we just rely on a safety net of social services, community based organizations to meet the needs of communities. And all of those organizations always need people with public health skills. Um, I think policy is a is a growing um, track, and um, for policy tracks really provide 
that extra training and understanding those complex systems and developing skills to work with politicians, to work with stakeholders. Um, sometimes you'll, those programs will be policy. Sometimes they're in programs like health management or health administration. Those are also um, uh, growing tracks. But I think that what will the trend in public health that I see tends to be a generalist track. Um, you know, when I was in Indiana, we always used to laugh. There were only really 12 credits difference between getting an MPH in epidemiology or an MPH in environmental health. Um, and the way that public health schools and public health programs are structured today, 90% of all of the content is the exact same. The areas of specialization are becoming less and less distinguishable between the concentrations. So I say pick a public health program based on uh, the faculty, based on how it fits with your family, how it works for you professionally and personally. In today's world, a public health major in one track uh, is highly applicable to public health careers uh, in any track. Uh, more important is being able to articulate your skills and have a vast set of uh, experiences that you can draw on so that uh, even if that job says they're looking for someone with a degree in X, Y, or Z, uh, you're likely to have the skills to do that. The more important thing is just to be able to be our, able to articulate the background and the training that you have. Awesome. So one last question before I let you go. Um, I know you have worked in different contexts. And I think it's important that we address um, how we can approach public health, um, whether we are at a small town, in an underserved community, or internationally. What are your thoughts about this different context? Well, it's all the same, <laughs> you know, kind of at the end of mm -hmm. the day, really. I mean, I, um, you know, if I think about work I did in Arizona, or work I did in San Diego or work I did in Baltimore or work I did in Kenya or Liberia, 90% of it was the same. Mm -hmm. um, it was about communicating mm -hmm. with people. It was about um, being able to uh, motivate communities and to understand unique things that were happening in those communities. And, and so to me, the you know, it's, I've been fortunate to work in lots of different types of organizations and in lots of different geographic places. But I guess as I think about your question, almost all of it was the same. It, um, the, the big difference mm -hmm. was the culture, the cultural piece and not just, not just like culture right. in the way we think of it, but the culture of the organization. You know, a, a state health department is mm -hmm. really different than a, County health department is really different than a homeless shelter. Um, working in, um, you know, the government offices in Liberia, however, were very similar to working in the government offices in Arizona. So um, the it's mm -hmm. the, the cultural pieces, right? You know, there there are differences between mm -hmm. um, governments and communities and. Um, advocacy groups and um, understanding those unique differences, I think is where the context really becomes important. But, um, you know, other than that, those cultural differences, uh, both organizational culture and human culture, um, much of the work is very similar and the same. And I think people who 
get that public health training and have that experience, find themselves uh, well prepared to walk into a range of environments and be successful. Great. And it's, it's good you've pointed out to that organizational culture, because most of the times we tend to focus on really what's happening on the ground in terms of the communities that we're working with. But that organizational culture does influence the kind of work that we do and the extent to which it becomes effective and makes sense to the community and ends up being sustainable. So thank you so much for speaking with us today. And uh, we hope to talk to you soon. And have Great. yourself. Thank you very a much. Talk to weekend. you soon. Bye bye. No.